Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 58. Last week, I began the history of Cleopatra VII, by far the most well-known Cleopatra of them all. So much so that most people don't know anything, or at best, relatively little, about the other wives, princesses, and queens who shared the name. In that last episode, I covered her life as a youth with her father, Ptolemy XII, as they were exiled, then returned to Egypt with the assistance of the Roman army. She was then installed as the co-leader, with her brother Ptolemy XIII, as client rulers of the growing Roman Empire. She would forge a close relationship with Julius Caesar, even bearing what was likely his only child, a son who would later be known as Ptolemy XV. At the same time, Ptolemy XIII was killed while battling Caesar. Cleopatra's younger brother, Ptolemy XIV, was then installed by Caesar as her co-ruler. Later, Caesar would be murdered while Cleopatra was in Rome, and she would attempt to have their son recognized as his primary heir. Instead, Julius's will named his grandnephew Octavian, later known as Caesar Augustus, as heir. Had she been successful, she may have altered the course of Western history. She would quickly return to Alexandria, having number 14 killed and elevated her son to co-ruler. Of course, there are many other interesting details in that episode, so if you missed it, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the beginning of her and 15's co-rule, working through the latter part of her reign. Approximately the years 44 through 36 BC. So, just eight years. But what an eight years it was. And with that, let's get started. Next in the Roman Empire was what was known as the Liberators' Civil War taking place between 43 and 42 BC. In this conflict, Cleopatra sided with what would become known as the Roman Second Triumvirate, a group that was led by Octavian, Mark Anthony, and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. These three were elected to five-year terms, with the stated goal of returning order to the Republic and bringing Caesar's assassins to justice. So how did Cleopatra and therefore Egypt, get embroiled in this conflict? Well, both sides of the coin contacted her requesting military aid. The first was Gaius Cassius Longius, one of Caesar's assassins, a man on the run. The other was Publius Cornelius Dalabella, the proconsul of Syria and a Caesarian loyalist. How would she split the baby? and look out for her own country's best interest. She authored a letter to Cassius, claiming that her country faced too many internal problems to get involved. At the same time, she had the four Roman legions left by Caesar in Egypt garrisoned and marched to Dalabella. Problems seemingly solved. Support for Roman leadership and more independence for her own land. Then the unexpected, the four legions about 20,000 troops, while in the Levant, were captured by Cassius. Oops, now the whole empire knew which side she was on. 
or at least you would think so. At the same time, her control over her own country was faltering. Serapion, Cleopatra's governor in Cyprus, defected to Cassius. It seems everyone was picking sides. And Serapion didn't just do this individually. He took part of the Egyptian fleet with him. And this makes sense, since Cyprus is an island. At any given time, part of the Egyptian navy and merchant fleet would be there. Cleopatra then took the better part of what remained of the fleet and had it set sail for Greece. There, it would lend support to Octavian and Antony. But the waters between Egypt and Greece had proven to be treacherous for millennia, and this era was no exception. Most of the fleet was heavily damaged in a Mediterranean storm, and those that weren't damaged were sufficiently slowed. So slowed that they arrived in Greece too late to aid in the battle. Fortunately, especially for her considering the side she chose, in late 42 BC, the army commanded by Mark Antony defeated the forces of Caesar's assassins at the Battle of Philippi in Greece. It was the loss of this battle that led to both Cassius and Brutus killing themselves. Things were going the Empire's way, and by the end of 42 BC, Octavian had gained control over much of the western half of the Roman Republic. At the same time, Antony met similar success in the eastern half. Lepidus, the third will of the Triumvirate, was still alive and officially part of the trio, but his influence and control had waned. Midway through the next year, so 41 BC, Antony established his headquarters at Tarsus, just inland from the southern Anatolian coast. After doing so, he would send several letters to Cleopatra, attempting to get her to make the trip to Asia Minor. She ignored his request. Antony would then send an envoy, Quintus Delius, and this personal touch apparently worked, as she agreed to make the trip, traveling to him on one of her naval ships. The meeting, when it did occur, was purely political and accomplished much. And when I say purely political, this is despite Antony's supposed other intentions. It's thought that he desired a, um, closer relationship with her. Something similar to what Julius Caesar had had. He no doubt remembered her from when he was that young cavalry officer, and she was the teenage princess, both on their way to Egypt to restore her father to the throne. He also may have met her when she was in Rome visiting Caesar, and undoubtedly knew of her reputed beauty, having seen it for himself. But before he could get to the next level in the relationship, the air needed to be cleared. Beforehand, Antony was unsure of Cleopatra's political loyalties. As to him, it was unclear who she had supported in the Civil War. The meeting allowed Cleopatra to clear her name and convince Antony that she was a true supporter of Rome's rightful rulers. They also addressed what territory in the Levant would come under her control. Well, really governorship. And what area would not. Now, remember that this area was inhabited by the tribes of Israel, who had for many centuries been governed by this empire or that. Of course, there will be much more on this in future episodes, 
It was during this meeting that Cleopatra convinced Antony to have her younger sister, Arsinoe IV, who now lived in exile in Ephesus, well, to have her murdered. The details of this event were covered in the last episode. So much family love, and you thought your sibling rivalry was terrible. Finally, Cleopatra persuaded Antony to hand over Serapion, the turncoat former governor of Cyprus. He did so, and she had him executed. Also during the visit, Cleopatra hosted Antony and several of his high-ranking officers for two nights of lavish banquets on board her official ship, known as a Thalamigos, as they sailed up the Kidnos River to Tarsus. The Thalamigos was the huge road river barge I covered a couple of episodes ago. While this wasn't likely the same ship as before, it was probably extremely similar, and given that it was essentially a catamaran river barge, it's quite surprising to me that she felt secure enough to take it across the Mediterranean. Before departing Anatolia for the return trip home, Cleopatra invited Antony to visit Egypt, and he wasted no time in making the trip, in fact doing so later that same year, arriving in Alexandria in November 41 BC. The people of the great city loved him for their own nationalistic reasons. First, they had not forgotten, or maybe they had to be reminded, how he was a vital part in the restoration of Ptolemy XII to power, a restoration that had occurred some 14 years earlier. Also, they were both relieved and joyful that on this trip, he did not arrive with an occupation force, as had Julius Caesar. Maybe to the people, this was a sign that Egypt was gaining a bit of independence. Cleopatra, as royal hostess, would continue the hospitality that she had demonstrated while visiting him in Anatolia, ensuring that all of his needs were met. At the same time, Antony made sure that his subordinates back in the eastern portion of the empire continued on with their work. While he was gone, his field commander, Polybius Ventantius Bassus, drove the Parthians from Anatolia and Syria, further expanding the empire. More on this in a bit. By this time, Cleopatra was beginning to sense the advantages to a potential partnership with Antony a partnership that was more than political. To her, with her political savvy, she knew he was probably the most powerful person in Rome, and therefore the empire, the empire that still controlled Egypt. As a reminder, this was during his initial five-year term as one of the elected members of the Triumvirate. And with this office came the power and authority to cede more independence to the once great African nation. And at the same time, perhaps give her control over additional territory in the Levant, and perhaps further north and east. This last part panned out for her, at least partially. During his visit to Egypt, he restored both Sicilia, near Tarsus, and Cyprus to her. There is also little doubt that Cleopatra knew that her power would grow if Antony would father a child with her, a child that could potentially have a claim to power in both Rome and Egypt. Antony, having stayed in Egypt for several months, would depart in the spring of 40 BC. 
He may have desired to remain there longer, but political and military troubles were boiling over in Syria. Just prior to his leaving Egypt, his Syrian governor, Lucius Dicidius Saxa, was killed and his army captured by Quintus Labinius. And this was even more serious since Labinius formerly served under Cassius. Remember him from the prior Roman civil conflict? Labinius found himself on the losing side of that civil war. He then defected to the Parthians and now was leading them to victory over the Romans. A serious threat indeed. And Antony did not leave Egypt empty-handed. Cleopatra gave him 200 ships for his campaign. The ships also served as payment, essentially in kind, for her newly reacquired territories of Cyprus and Sicilia. Perhaps for the both of them, parting was sweet sorrow. He did leave something behind. I'll get to that, those, them, in a minute. They didn't know it at the time, but Cleopatra and Antony would not see each other again for nearly four years, not until 37 BC. The world may have been smaller, but in that era, travel was no faster than the wind or on the back of a beast of burden. It would remain this way for nearly 2,000 years until the invention of the steam engine and its incorporation on ships and locomotives. But I digress. Despite their separation, they did write each other. But that's not all. Unknown to him, she maintained a spy in his camp. So politically savvy. Several months later, somewhere between, let's say, six and nine months later, by the end of 40 BC, wait for it, Cleopatra gave birth to not one, but two of his children, twins. This plan, too, executed so well. A boy and a girl named Alexander Helios in Cleopatra's Selene II. Helios was named for the sun, with a U, and Selene for the moon. It's thought that these names were to signify a new era of societal renaissance. It's also been proposed that Cleopatra chose the name Alexander, hoping that Antony would repeat Alexander the Great's exploits, this time by defeating the Parthians. More on these names in a minute. And unlike her son with Julius Caesar, Ptolemy XV, who's really been sidelined during all of this, a ruler in name only. Anyway, unlike Caesar, Antony publicly acknowledged that the twins were his. And, just so it doesn't slip by, and I know it won't, since I have the most intelligent listeners. But just note that Antony not only did not see Cleopatra those four years, he did not see, even initially meet, his only two children. It's worth noting that similar to Julius, Antony had a wife at the time. Between 46 and 40 BC, he was married to Fulvia. So, he was married to her while he was visiting Cleopatra in Alexandria. Their marriage ended with her death, but this occurred after Antony fathered children with Cleopatra. In fact, Fulvia may have known of the affair between her husband and the Greek-Egyptian queen, and it led to increasing unrest in the empire. More on that in a minute. 
Antony's Parthian War in the eastern portion of the empire was disrupted by the events of the Perusine War. The war was instigated by Antony's wife Fulvia, and it was fought against the other principal member of the Triumvirate, Octavian. Her rationale was not scorn and jealousy, but there was something possibly a bit more rational. By fighting Octavian, she may have been hoping to make Antony the undisputed leader of Rome. Some have proposed that she may have instigated the conflict to draw Antony out of Egypt and away from Cleopatra. But the timing of that theory is a bit off. The behind-the-scenes instigation was, by its nature, off the record, so the dates are a bit uncertain. And this may have occurred in Rome prior to Antony meeting Cleopatra in Tarsus. So, she was possibly not motivated by jealousy. With that done, a bit on the Perusine War. The conflict mainly raged on the Italian Boot Peninsula. With Fulvia and Antony's brother, Lucius Antonius, eventually being besieged by Octavian at Perusia, which is essentially the modern city of Perugia, Italy. This city is found upstream from Rome on the Tiber River. The pair would surrender and then be exiled from Italy. Not long afterwards, Fulvia would die in Sicyon in Greece. At the time, she was attempting to get to Antony. Her death would lead to a reconciliation between Octavian and Antony in September 40 BC. Publicly, the two-thirds of the triumphant blamed Fulvia for the strife and disagreement. But the reconciliation wasn't without conditions. While it did increase Antony's control of the Roman Republic's territories east of the Ionian Sea, so Greece, Anatolia, Syria, the Levant, and Egypt, but he had to give up claims to Italia, Hispania, and Gaul. But that wasn't all. Carrying on the long-standing tradition of solidifying political alliances with the exchange of family members, Antony agreed to marry Octavian's sister, known as Octavia the Younger. And there was a certain queen in Egypt who was certainly not pleased. Back in Egypt, something happened that would impact the beginning of the New Testament. In December of 40 BC, Herod, later known as Herod the Great, fled to Alexandria seeking refuge. What was his motivation? Previously, in Judea, Antony made Herod the Tetrarch, essentially the governor of a region in the area. Soon after this, Herod was embroiled in a dispute with Antigonus II, Matathias, who was part of the long-established Hasmonean dynasty. Antigonus would have Herod's brother Phasael, who was also a tetrarch, imprisoned. As soon as Herod fled towards Egypt, Antigonus executed Phasael. Obviously, things were a bit grim for the future biblical villain. And imagine how the history would have been potentially different had he decided to stick around. Cleopatra offered to provide Herod with a military assignment, but Herod declined, instead opting to travel to Rome to work the Roman leaders over politically. While in Rome, both Octavian and Antony agreed to crown him the king of Judea. Of course, he, like Cleopatra, 
was not an independent king, but instead really the governor of a client state, and a rival to Cleopatra. He was now king over most of the Levant, and she thought this territory should be part of renewed Ptolemaic Egypt. More on this later. Circling back to Antony and Cleopatra, and this may be the first time I phrased them that legendary way. So circling back, in the time since Antony married Octavia, Cleopatra was embittered, and it got worse. Cleo was rearing his children, whom she hoped would inherit the throne. But then Antony fathered two kids with Octavia, namely Anatonia the Elder and Anatonio Minor. Your opinion may be different, but at least Cleopatra was a bit more original and creative with the names of her children with Antony. On January 1st, 37 BC, the first terms of the triumvirate expired, but it was extended for another term, so until the end of 33 BC. About the same time, Antony set off for Antioch en route to take on the Parthians. Octavian supported the campaign by providing 2,000 of his own troops. While in Antioch, Antony once again summoned Cleopatra for a political summit. Topics on the agenda included his desire for her to support Herod and monetary support for his impending campaign against the Parthians. She went, but opted not to travel alone, bringing their three-year-old twins along finally to meet their father. It was potentially at this time that the young duo received the names Helios and Selena perhaps symbolizing their parents' formulated ambitious plans for the future. Cleopatra was rewarded too, with Antony expanding her territory. She gained nearly all of Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, except for Tyre and Sidon. These two strategically important cities would remain controlled directly by Rome. She also won a small historic victory by being granted Ptolemaeus Acho, a city established by Ptolemy II. This is the modern city of Acre, Israel. Another historic grant was the region of Sili, Syria, the portion along the upper Orontes River. This was granted due to her familial ancestry with the Seleucids. To Herod's displeasure, she was granted the region surrounding Jericho, in the Levant. Herod would lease the land back from her. To the south, and at the expense of the Nabataean king, Malichus I, who was a cousin of Herod, Cleopatra was given a portion of the Nabataean kingdom around the Gulf of Aqaba, on the very north end of the Red Sea, just east of the Sinai Peninsula. Also a couple of cities in Roman Crete. Finally, and historically important, she was granted Cyrene, which was to the west of her nation in what is today Libya. Now to be clear and redundant, she was not independent and remained under the control of Rome. But at home in Egypt, this certainly played well with the populace. Back in Rome, Octavian and Antony were quickly becoming political rivals again. Octavian played the territorial moves in the opposite way with the populace and political class in Rome. He positioned the ceding and transfer of territory 
as a giveaway by Antony. They would come to see Antony's transfers as the empowering of a foreign queen at the expense of the Republic. Octavian further swayed public sentiment against Antony by pressing a story that Antony was neglecting his wife at home by herself in Rome. Octavian took it a step further. He would have his own wife, Lavia, along with Antony's wife, declared sacrosanct, essentially made living deities. How dare Antony neglect a living deity? Things were quickly getting out of control for Antony. Back in Antioch in 36 BC, Cleopatra would accompany Antony on his campaign against the Parthians, but that didn't last long as she hastily returned to Egypt, probably because she was now pregnant with another of Antony's children. Later that year, she would give birth to Ptolemy Philadelphus, her second son with Antony. That same year, Herod was entangled in a Judean civil war that was so bad the Roman military had to intervene. It's thought he sought assistance from Cleopatra, but she had her own desires and offered nothing. So much for the support that Antony wanted her to give Herod. Antony had his own problems. While battling the Parthians, his ally, the king of Armenia, Artavas II, defected to the Parthians, but that wasn't the worst news. Antony would lose approximately 30,000 men in the conflict. He knew this was an embarrassment for the Romans, an embarrassment that was his responsibility. In his depression, he would turn to the bottle and encamp in what is today Lebanon. Enter Cleopatra, who showed up with cash and supplies. She would convince him to not return to Rome, but to go with her to Alexandria. It was there that he would finally meet his infant son. And that's a good stopping point for this week. Before you say anything, I know I said I would wrap up Cleopatra in this episode, but the narrative is far too interesting to summarize terribly much. The lesson for me is, stop making such commitments. Join me next week when I'll continue the history of Antony, Cleopatra, Herod, Rome, and Egypt. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.